Hey, welcome to chapel. It is good to see everybody in the room. It's also, also amazing to have uh, Pastor Caleb and Rachel Culver from Radiant Church in Kalamazoo. Many of y'all remember him from our first prophetic presbytery a couple years ago. There's a blessing uh, to the church in Kalamazoo and a blessing to our church as well. So give them a round of applause one more time. They, they spent all day yesterday pouring into our, our worshiping creative teams, and just it was a great, great Saturday. Uh, Pastor Brian and Pastor Jason just raved about it. They had a chance to sit underneath uh, Lenny LeBlanc, who's a legend in the worship world, and just poured his heart out, his testimony to our team. So it's been a really powerful weekend. We want to continue that tonight with that worship night uh, with Rachel and Caleb, but also Rita Springer. It's going to be a really powerful night. Invite your friends, your family to join you. If there's no message, just straight worship, seeking the presence of God together. And you also heard about Adopt-A-Block, which is one of the main ministries of our church. And so what that is, is we decided a few years ago we're going to adopt Cypress Point neighborhood in West Florence, and we're going to pour resources and value and love and volunteer hours there. So we always do some type of service project. We do a kids' jam, which is a kids' ministry outreach thing, and we have fun just getting to know the people in the community and letting them know God loves them in a tremendous way. So make sure you register for that. There's a meeting right after first service next week as well. So it's going to be a great, great Sunday. And then in two weeks... I'm going, to, I'm going to share our vision Sunday. So I'm going to share what God has done in the past year and a half here at chapel and what I believe God is going to do in the next few years here at Christ Chapel. And so that's going to be a powerful, powerful Sunday. So we continue our series today on I want to believe in God, but. So the first one we talked about, I want to believe in God, but there's just way too much suffering in the world. We kind of nailed that down. Last week we talked about I want to believe in God, but, you know, science and faith, I just they don't coincide together. And today I want to talk about uh, kind of, a more emotional subject, but before we get there, next week I'm going to hit all your questions on the Bible, theology, culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've done this a few times, but I need your help. I need you to text the word question to that number. It's going to send you a link that you can submit your questions. So go ahead and text it right now in church. I'm not going to say you're, you're not paying attention. Just go ahead and text the word question to 256-670-2860, and all questions are on the table. So we're going to nail those down next week and answer those questions. Um, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 20, and we're going to continue this series on I want to believe in God, but I love God, but I don't like the church. I love God, but I don't like the church. I know what you're saying. Well, I'm here at church. Yes, there's plenty of people in church that don't actually love the church. There's a lot of people online and people that aren't here that don't love the church. So you need to be empowered with the reasons why you should love the local church. Bill Heibel said this, the local church is the hope of the world. There is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. Like, I love that quote because for me, like, I've made a decision to give my life for the church. Like, I've made a decision I want to give my life, my dreams, my passions, my money, my family to the local church. I've seen the beauty of the local church. I want to see other people experience the beauty of the New Testament church. And so he said this way, but there's nothing like the local church when it's living, loving, and functioning correctly. Like, and I've seen it, to be honest, I've seen it. Like, when we were started a church in North Nashville, started from nothing, it was a church plant out of our home church in Cornerstone, and we saw God do the miraculous with this church. Literally, it started with zero people and grew to 1,200 people in four years. And in that, we saw people healed. I watched a guy named Tommy who had been in a wheelchair And he walked through the doors on a worship night one Wednesday night. Like I watched people who were hardened to God fall down at the altar and get saved. I saw people get filled with the Holy Ghost that were Church of Christ or Baptist or or no affiliation at all. I saw God move in incredible, incredible, incredible ways. Like I saw people come together to become a family that were strangers the week before. Like it was a move of God and it was beautiful. I preached in Cuba. Where in Cuba, like, there is no sanctioned church. And so I remember preaching, and one night we were eating dinner. They said, hey, you got to leave. I didn't get to eat, and I was starving. They said, you got to go preach at this church. And these guys that spoke no English picked me up in, like, a 1952 Plymouth with no shocks. I had to go to the chiropractor for, like, six months straight when I got back. And we're, we get this Plymouth, had, like, a Kia engine in it, and we drive. And I just remember seeing streetlights. And all of a sudden, there's no more streetlights. And I'm thinking, 
Man, they told me it was only like two and a half kilometers, but we've been driving for like 30 minutes. Now there's no more street lights, and it's just sugarcane fields. And I've watched enough mafia movies that this isn't a good scenario. So the guy that was going with me to, 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 to kind of be there while I preached, I say, bro, like, is this our chance? Like, do we kill them first? He said, let's just wait. So I'm trying to pick up the Spanish. They're not saying a word. Like, they're not trying to build conversation. I'm like, bro, like. And then all of a sudden, I see one little light in the distance. And our car takes this turn in the middle of a sugarcane field. And I said, this is it, bro. Like, it's been good knowing you, but we're done for. And at the end of this little bitty dirt road, after my back hurts, my neck hurts, like I'm scared to death, we pull up this little bitty farmhouse with one little light. And as I walk in, there's worship music playing with about 23 people. It's not a church building. It's a house that this pastor lives in. There's literally a sheet covering one side of the house. This was the living room slash the church sanctuary. Him and his family all lived in this bedroom covered by a sheet. And I remember preaching, and I preached like I'd never preached before. I preached my heart out. I thought these people have come from near and far risking life risking everything they've had to come hear me preach. i got to pour my heart out, and I'm just preaching and preaching and preaching. And when it's done with the pastor, he said, let me show you something, pastor. So we walked through this little sanctuary. There's a little bitty kitchen, and he opened the door of the kitchen, and there's pigs. Literally right there at the back door, he said, these are the church's pigs. He said, the church owns them, and every time the pigs have babies, we give them to other people in the church. And we continue to repopulate and provide for our family in the church because there is no other provision. There's no jobs. There's no government welfare. Socialism doesn't work. And he said this. He said, I want to feed you. Now, I'm looking at He has hardly anything. And he offers me a plate of food out of his nothing and some warm coconut water. I hate coconut water. It's the most nasty, disgusting thing ever given to people. And so I'm sitting there thinking, I, I, I love this coconut water. This, this pastor gave me his coconut water. And I saw the beauty of people giving their lives and their love and their heart for the local church. But on the other side, there is also nothing like the local church when it's living, loving, and functioning incorrectly. Like, that's the contrast. Like, when God's church is working the way God wants his church to work, it's beautiful. Like, and, and many of us hopefully have experienced the beauty of God's church working correctly. But there's also nothing as detrimental to someone's faith as when they're part of a local church that is not living, loving, and functioning like Jesus wants it to. It causes heartache, it causes church hurt, it causes pain, it causes doubt, it causes anxiety, it causes worry, it causes fear. And if we were to take a poll, probably every single person in this room has church hurt on some level. I was talking to RJ about this, and I said, do pastors get church hurt? He's like, yeah, but you're the pastor. And he said, oh. He's like, I've seen it. And he started telling stories of times he saw me get hurt by the church. And so I've seen the beauty of God's church. But at that same church, there was a moral failure. And the moral failure wasn't even the problem because the Bible tells us how to handle moral failures. Matthew 18 shows us how to handle that. First Timothy and Titus show us how to handle biblical standards of leadership. That's easy. It was all the power struggle, the politics the control, the flesh that rose up afterwards that destroyed something beautiful and tried to destroy my soul. Like my first year in Florence, Alabama, it was church hurt. If, you know, back in the day, the Chinese restaurants had the year of whatever, the year of the monkey, the year of, for me, 2015 was the year of church hurt. Like no matter which way I turned, like I still have PTSD from the church hurt. And so what's amazing is the church can be such a beautiful, powerful thing, but it can also be something that the enemy uses to destroy that which is beautiful. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Because that which God wants to use to be the hope of the world, the enemy tries to use to be the courier and the vessel of doubt and pain for God's people. In order for you to fall in love with the church, you have to know exactly why God loves the church 
and the which way God is moving us forward. And so I want to read Acts chapter 20 together. This is Paul speaking. Now, Paul's not just anybody. This is Paul leaving Ephesus. And Ephesus was a church he planted. He placed Timothy as a pastor in. He's talking to the elders as he's leaving to go towards Rome. And he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, everybody say wolves. He's not talking about you. He's talking about the person sitting next to you will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Now what's interesting is Paul is somebody who was tremendously, tremendously church hurt. Like, I used to think I was church hurt until I read 2 Corinthians. Paul had been stoned a couple of times. He'd been kicked out of cities by the church multiple times. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been lied about. They tried to kill him. He'd been imprisoned, all for just loving God's church. Yet when he's leaving to go to new church, he says this. He says, one, pay careful attention to yourselves, making sure you're not the reason people get church hurt making sure you're not the cause of their effect. But then he says to care for the church. Now, now I like this because in a day and age where no one cares about the church, they care for everything else but them, but for themselves but the church. He says, I want you to care for the church. The church that hurt Paul, Paul is now saying, I want you to care for it. Why? Because he didn't buy it. Jesus bought it. He said, I don't, I'm not caring for the church because I, I've not been church hurt. I'm caring for the church that no matter how bad I'm hurt, Jesus was hurt worse, and I'm honoring his sacrifice by caring for his church. But then he says this, this word, draw away. Be careful, because there's people coming that know that the church is the hope of the world. There's people that are coming that know that God wants to use the church to be a blessing and not a curse. There's people coming that the enemy is already working in to use to make the church not function correctly, but function incorrectly for the sole purpose to draw away the disciples. Now, when you first read draw away, it makes you think of enticing somebody out, right? Like entice, like the enemy's trying to entice people out of the church or entice people to no longer be disciples. But in the Greek, that word actually means to tear away or push away or pull away. Meaning that the enemy has assigned people to try to tear you out of God's church. The enemy has assigned people to try to push you out of the local church or to pull you out of the local church. So Paul knew this and he was saying that it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But when it comes, make sure you go back to this. Make sure no matter how bad you get hurt, keep on caring for the church. And no matter how bad you get hurt, keep caring for the church because it's not your church, it's his church. And he paid for it with his blood. And so you need to realize this, that the local church, to me, I, I told you, I'm giving my life for it. I will die for the church. But I also have to realize that Paul could have such a positive outlook on the church, even though he'd been church hurt so badly, because he realized the local church is constantly under attack from outside and inside spiritual forces to make it lifeless instead of life-giving. So Paul was able to see that the reason I'm hurt is not because God doesn't love the church. The reason I've been hurt is not because this isn't God's purpose or plan for me. The reason I've been hurt is because the church is under attack. And I happen to be on the front lines of the war. I happen to be in the battle. And so the wounds I have are not the church's fault. The wounds I have are the enemy's fault because he's trying to destroy the local church. And right now we're in a season where there's a popular word, depending on what you read and what blogs and what you pay attention to, a word called deconstruction. Deconstruction is a word that in church world people are hearing because there's people trying to deconstruct the church or deconstruct their faith. And what they're really trying to do is they're trying to tear down the things of the church they don't like in order to keep the things they do like. It's things like, I was talking to a, a guy on social media this week, who great, great guy. 
But he said, you know, the gospel, all you need is to love people as yourself. Like that's all, everything else is legalism and fundamentalism. Like this whole thing about obedience and discipleship, that's just too much. All you need to do is love your neighbor as yourself. And so what I see is somebody who's trying to deconstruct the gospel because they've been hurt by church people who weren't loving. So they swing the pendulum way over here to all you got to do is love people. And so I told him on social media, which I never engaged with, I said, what's well, interesting that I understand what you're trying to say, but the gospel is not just love. The great commandment was actually in Deuteronomy. So if the great commandment is the only thing needed with the gospel, you could actually do that. And we're commanded to do that in the Old Testament. I was like, so there has to be more to it than just the great commandment because the great commandment is not the only commandment. It's just the great commandment. It's priority one out of a lot of priorities. I said, because here's what I see. When Jesus caught the woman caught in the act of adultery and he forgave her and showed her this amazing grace, he didn't say, okay, now go and just love your neighbor as yourself. He said, no, I want you to go and sin no more. Which means he wanted her to be obedient, and obedience has to do with loving people as yourself. And so this whole move of deconstruction is trying to destroy what Paul is saying we should care about. And what it actually is, it's culture trying to destroy and deconstruct everything that has any sense of authority. So the deconstruction movement is not just trying to deconstruct the church. What they, they look at it as, as whiteness and white power and white colonialism. They're trying to destroy America and colonialism and patriotism and anything that has any sense of authority they're trying to destroy. The problem is this. I'm all for deconstructing the church. I don't like the word, but I'm all for deconstructing the church because deconstruction means, in my words, reformation. And I believe the church actually goes through life cycles that every 50 to 100 years, there needs to be a reformation or a deconstruction because as a church, we usually get too far towards culture and deconstruction or reformation draws us back to the New Testament. Jesus did this. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he told people, he said, you've heard it said this way, but he says the word actually says this. And what he was saying to our church is that, hey, you may have heard it said that the church is an American nationalist or it's an American concept, but whoa, the word of God says it's not, this is a kingdom thing, not a country thing. And so Jesus actually deconstructed the church or faith of the Pharisees. So I believe that we're in a season we need a reformation. The church needs to be reformed to kick out all the American nationalist patriotism that has gotten more loyalty by church people than they have for Jesus and his kingdom. I also believe that it needs to be a reformation to bring people back to the word and spirit, that the word guides us in truth, and the spirit empowers us to live out that truth. I believe there's lots of things that need to happen, but that's not what deconstruction or culture is. The culture is not deconstructing the church saying, well, Jesus said it should be like this, and the Bible says the church should be like this. The world is deconstructing the church off a different filter. Instead of using the word of God, they're deconstructing the church based off the culture of the world. So they're trying to get the church to be torn down to look more like the world and less like Jesus. And in doing so, you'll end up with something that will never produce hope of the world, never produce the love of Jesus. It just produces carnality and selfishness and in turn, no eternal value or purpose. And so we have to know that the church is under attack by outside forces. That's the culture of the world. The culture of the world hates the culture of the church because the culture of the church exposes the culture of the world. So you have to know that anytime your light shines, somebody's going to try to cover your light up. You also need to know that the church is under attack by the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist isn't just some end times figure. It's any spirit that makes you think there's good news and hope and salvation in anything other than Jesus. And it's active in the church all over the world. You also have the powers of darkness or the powers of hell that are seeking to destroy the church because Jesus said they will not prevail against God's kingdom or these gates. The gates of hell shall not prevail against this. He's saying there's going to be an attack. So there's outside forces, but that ain't the problem. It's also under attack by inside forces. That's what most of us have experienced in regards to church pain. And I would like to put it in two categories, false prophets and fake Christians. Most of us are under attack. The church is under attack by 
false prophets and fake Christians. What that means is there are lots of false prophets. Jesus said some will come through the side door, some will come through a window. They're trying to get in because if they can get into a place of authority, they can take the whole church off track. Sometimes it's easy to spot. Like there's a church I've read this week in San Diego. It's a church, the byline is a church for sinners by sinners. And the pastor's wife is a porn star. And they celebrate it at the church. Doing so, you can spot that a mile away. That's probably not a true prophet or teacher of the Bible. Like that's not hard. But it's the other ones that are a little bit more difficult. It's the ones that come in and try to build their own ego and pride because when Satan fell from heaven, he didn't build another kingdom, he just built himself up. And so many times the false prophets in church world aren't ones that say Jesus is heretic or you don't need Jesus. They're just ones that make you depend on them and they depend on you to feed their pride and ego. Those are a little bit harder. And to be honest, like I'm about to make a lot of people mad. The false, Mark Rutland, me, Pastor Marissa, and Pastor Brian got to spend a couple days with Mark Rutland this week. He said the, the number one threat to the American church is the idolatry of friendship. Where we'll give people a moral past that we're friends with, meaning they can lower their standards of holiness and we won't say anything. So we'll let them go in the wrong direction, even if it's away from heaven, because we're friends with them. But in return, we'll give our friends a moral pass because we know him. I mean, I've known Joe for 40 years. You know, I know he messed up and had 14 affairs and got two DUIs. He's a good guy. But then the congressman that votes what you don't like, oh, he's going to hell. See, the idolatry of friendship lets us give people a pass where God wants a standard. And this has to do with church world. Because we live in a day and age where we will allow false prophets to preach in a church that have proven they don't have the fruit of a true, godly, mature ministry that will have moral failures and be unrepentant. And they demonstrated their fruit, but we give them a pass because we like them as a person. We'll let them continue preaching a gospel, not to build the kingdom, but to build their ego in the name of friendship. And in doing so, We give them a moral pass and everyone else uh, a pass to hell. And here's the thing. Oh, pastor, that sounds so hateful. No, no. God gives grace to the believer, but he gives a standard to the leaders. And that's what Paul is saying here. He you got to watch out because there's wolves coming in. If there's no standard, you'll have a wolf in the platform or on the pulpit. And so what that means is there's false prophets that are trying to steal your attention and trying to steal my attention and try to steal my focus and put it on a man instead of the king. But there's also fake Christians. In the Bible Belt, there's time. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the person next to you. They're people that go through the motions of being a Christian But they may say I'm a Christian with a mouth, but their lives go in a completely different direction. And in doing so, it produces all types of attacks in the church. Here's just a few. One, inside attacks against the church, deception. Deception comes into the church where you start hearing lies and there's lies being spread and created. We call it gossip. We call it slander. But it's an evil spirit trying to destroy the hope of the world that's in the church. Obstacles preventing the truth from actually being heard. Alternatives, inspiring false gospels or false messages. Accusations, pointing out our sins and flaws in others. Creating conflict because of pride and jealousy. Power struggles. Seizing opportunities to grab power inside the church. Now, I remember when I first got here, I had lunch with uh, Pastor Jeff Noblet. Me and Jeff Noblet are on totally different spectrums of the theology train. But I respect Jeff because Jeff is a Bible-preaching, holiness-preaching, seeking-to-honor-God man of God. And I had lunch with Jeff, and I said, hey, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for for maintaining the Bible as the anchor of the faith here in the Shoals. Because there's a lot of chaos here, and you've done a great job maintaining. He said, man, I appreciate that. And we started talking. We talked about the gifts of the Spirit. We had a great conversation And I started telling him some things I've been through. He said, listen, every single issue in church is an issue of power. 
He says, not the color of the carpet. It's over who has the power to choose the color of the carpet. It's not over worship style. It's over who gets the power to choose the style of worship. It's not over the preaching. It's over who has the power to decide who gets to preach and what gets to preach. And so to explain it, like years ago, there was a situation I was in. And I just remember we were in a season of prayer and fasting. And I don't know about you, but there's, even if you don't want to fast and everybody else is fasting, you should fast. Like Pastor Brian said, if he goes on a diet, everybody in the house goes on a diet. I like that rule. So we're in a season of prayer and fasting for some serious, I mean, we're in church transition. It was just, it was serious. And I remember we went, I was doing a, most of us doing a Daniel fast, which is just vegetables and fruits. And we went to Ruby Cheese's when it's still open to get a salad after church to, to have an elders meeting. And we're at this elders meeting, and I remember we all get a salad, and one dude literally gets a steak. I'm like, bro, even if you're not fasting, you're just a jerk. Like, literally, I'm eating rabbit food, and you're eating a medium rare ribeye. And it, so it just shook me. And I was like, man, that's weird. He's not fasting with us. Then he's not. And so we left, and I was in prayer, and God began to show me some things in prayer that it wasn't about a steak, it was about power. That the person, he came from a career where he was, he was not in power and he was looking to get power to feel, feel confident in who he was through the church. And even the stake had to do with power because many of us have been hurt in church, not because people are bad, but because people seek power. Like when you think about most of the church where you've been through, it came from somebody who was just seeking power or more power. Carnality, which is hidden sin and intentional sin. That no matter what you think, sin affects the entire camp. And when there's people in the church that have intentional, hidden, unrepentant sin, it's not just affecting you, it affects how God sees our entire church. Like the book of Revelation wasn't written to the individuals, it was written to the church. He says, I have this against you, and it was the sins inside the church. Independence, where people want to rely on themselves or their giftings or their talents, Instead of the Holy Spirit and distractions, when you get focused on everything else but the gospel, you get focused on what you like or what you don't like, you get focused on politics, you get focused on too much theology, you get focused on everything but Jesus. Jesus is the pinnacle and the highlight and the focus of the church. And when you start getting too involved in everything else around Jesus, you actually miss Jesus. So most people wouldn't say those things, they would say, Well, I love God, I just don't really like the church. And what they'll say to kind of explain that is, well, I love Jesus, but I, I don't really like organized religion. Oh, okay. So you love God, but you don't love his bride. You love God, but you don't like organization. But I promise you, if you go to a bank and they have money laying on the floor in the lobby, you're not gonna go back to that bank because it's not organized. If you go to the hospital and it's not organized, you're probably not going to let them do your surgery. If you go to the grocery store and there's no shelves, they just put boxes all over the floor and say, just pick what you want and we'll check you out later. You're probably not going to like that grocery store because there's something about organization that tells us it's valued. And the Bible is full of organization. We see in the Old Testament, there's a whole book called Numbers where someone had to organize millions of people to receive the word and the presence of God. You see 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, these are all books about the organization of the church. Well, yeah, but I don't really need church. I could just be at home. And No, no, no. See, what that comes down to is two things. One, a spirit of pride that says, I don't need the church because I know more than the church could ever have, which is really a spirit of Gnosticism where I have special revelation that you guys don't have. Or two, it's a spirit of rebellion out of church hurt, where somebody's been hurt by church, and instead of working through those issues, they reject the church altogether. And in doing so, it's the same thing Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, where they rejected the organization of God and the authority of God to go do their own thing. And so my struggle with that is this, that if, if you told me, Bobby, I love you, I just hate your wife, me and you probably aren't going to be too tight. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's things about you I like, but she gets to my nerves. Yeah, yeah, but we're one, homie. Like, 
Like RJ asked last night, he said, if Canelo Alvarez made, talked bad about mom, what would you do? I'd say, well, I'd ask him very politely, please, sir, don't do that ever again because he could break my face with one punch. But if he says something about her, he's saying it about me. And see, when you say, well, I love God, but I don't like the church, what you're really saying is, Jesus, I love you, but I hate your wife. So if you say, I love you, but I hate your wife, how good do you think you and Jesus' relationship is going to be? Because there's, there's lots of commands in the Bible. I don't want to hit these too hard. There's lots of commands in the Bible about the church. One, I don't think you can follow Jesus and not follow him to church. Because I promise you, Every Sabbath, while Jesus was on earth, he was at church. It says this in Luke 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Mark chapter 6, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. But the Bible also doesn't just talk about going to church. It talks about submitting to the church because it commands us all to be submitted to the leadership of the local church. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you realize it's not about coming to church. It's about coming under the covering of the leadership of a church. And it says that you're supposed to submit, and I and the elders and the team are supposed to overlook and care for your Soul. That means when you mess up, God comes to me about it. Like when you choose to just do whatever you want to, God holds me accountable and the elders and the team accountable. It all affects everybody, but he also says you should do this in a way, not with groaning, but brings joy. And I've built my life on this principle that I am submitted to my, my pastor I'm submitted to my elders. I'm submitted to our overseers because I can't be a man over authority unless I'm a man under authority. And the more you submit to authority, the more authority God gives you. But there's also other commands. First Peter chapter four, that you are commanded to use your gifts to serve the body for a better purpose. Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered, you're commanded to walk out church discipline and forgiveness in a way that brings a blessing to everybody. We can go to first Corinthians, second Corinthians, there's a way people say, yeah, but the church is just, it's just so organized. It can't be the way it was in the New Testament. Actually, they have found orders of service from the New Testament and pretty much our church services, they are exactly like they were in the first century. Outside of, get this, they would have communion at the end of service. Their communion was like a potluck. And here's what they do. Hey, this is the time anybody could come to church, but only members who were submitted to leadership could be part of the love feast, communion. So he had dismissed anybody who's not a member. And the only way you could be a member is to get baptized and get this Church of Christ people. They only did baptisms once a year on Easter Sunday. So if you got saved the week after, you had to wait an entire year to get baptized so that you could eat the potluck. Means the rest of them are going home eating crackers and tuna fish while everybody else is eating Thanksgiving feast. It was organized. But see, I think Paul knew me under attack, but Paul also knew this. But when the church is unhealthy, it hides the light of the gospel. But when the church is healthy, it is God's light of hope to the world around us. See, he knew, Paul knew that even when it's unhealthy, it has a chance to be healthy again. And when it's healthy, it is the light to the world. In Matthew 5, he says this, You are light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What he's saying is the enemy wants to take that light and cover that light up so those that are in the world can't see the hope of the world. So when a church is unhealthy, it's like taking a, a cover and putting it over the light of the gospel. People see a church, but they don't see hope. People see a church sign, they don't see love. People see people gather on Sunday morning, but they don't see Jesus. Like the enemy tries to use his attacks to cover up your hope, your faith, your love, your desires, your passion, your worship. It's like a wet blanket over the fire of the Holy Ghost. But a healthy church is like taking that blanket off and letting those flames ignite again.
yeah, but pastor, you know, the church has been a cause of so many evils. We actually had, we'd never do mailers. We did a mailer just coming out of, of COVID. I sent this mailer out about this series. Somebody wrote on it and brought it back to the church. I thought they mailed it in, but they actually put it in the mailbox, which is a felony. But, but I appreciate it because it tells us the community we're trying to reach. It says this, don't ever, in all caps, send me any more propaganda for your abusive cult again. Christianity slash superstition in general is to blame. I believe for most of what ruins human life. Please get out of the way so the rest of us can hopefully make the world worth living in. All right, so, you know, it, it doesn't bother me. It's, it's interesting people go through all that energy to, to make a point. But that's the way a lot of the world feels. Like if you ask people that are non-believers, well, the church has been the cause of so many evils, like the Crusades. And what's interesting is the people that say the Crusades actually never read about the Crusades because the Crusades was the Pope trying to defend the Christians who were being slaughtered by the Muslims in Jerusalem. Yeah, but the church has just caused so much of this. I'm like, really? Because I've read a lot of church history, and there's a lot of things the church has done that if it wasn't for the church, we wouldn't have. As a matter of fact, without the church, we would have no hospitals. Hospitals, two words, hotel and hospitality that the Christians put together because the Romans didn't care about poor, sick people. They only cared about their troops. And the church, through their charity and their love, started getting sick people off the street, bringing them into their homes, bringing them into the church to care for them and bring healing through the spirit and through the gifts of knowledge to the people. So without the church, if you got COVID, you had to go home and hopefully... You were a military official. That was the only way you would get service. Also, without the church, there would be no universities. That the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages started the university track with majors, with standards. Up until then, it was like elementary school, and then you had to learn on your own. What that means, without the church, there is no Alabama football. Without the church, there would be no orphanages or foster care to care for children. When the church was first birthed out of Acts chapter 2, Romans had very little value of life. And so literally, if it was a very sexualized culture. They worshiped a lot of goddesses and gods that they worshiped through sex worship. And so it was very sexualized. And with sex comes reproduction, and re- reproduction comes babies. But they didn't want the babies. They just wanted the sex. And so they literally take the babies and throw them into the streets to die in the streets. And the Christians who had a high value of life, they believe all people are created in the image of God, would literally go, one of them was called, called Callistus. Callistus was a, was a former slave who got released, who was a Christian. He started Life Watches where him and some of his friends would literally go to the areas of town where people would throw the babies on the street. They would grab the babies and bring them into church and raise the babies like their own. Like without the church, there is no caring for orphans or foster kids. There's another bishop. He was actually more political than that. He actually would go to the Roman emperor and try to make a law where they could not do that anymore. Until finally in the fourth century, they changed the law to outlaw infanticide. In doing so, it's very interesting that it parallels with today, that we have an over-sexualized culture, and one of the results of an over-sexualized culture is unwanted babies, and the same way, instead of putting them out in the streets, we just use abortion as a way to remove the problem from the scenario, but the church is again on the front lines trying to save life that God sees has value. Well, it's just so political. No, it's not political. It's, if it was in the open, we'd be running to save life. But since things happen behind closed doors, we're like, well, that's private. Without the church, there would be more poverty in the world. Like, literally almost every single benevolence ministry in the world was started by Christians and the church. Like, even just our Dream Center across here, we feed over 1,000 families a month. 1,000 families a month receive groceries, not from the government, but from the church. Chapel, Haiti, we see kids going to school being educated. Why? The government doesn't provide education. The church provides education. Why? Because the church is the hope of the world. 
Without the church, there would still be slavery in the world. People blame the church for slavery, but it was the church that brought abolition to release the slaves in England and then in America. Jonathan Edwards went to George Washington and said, is it, a, it is a sin for America to have slaves. It is a sin for you to have slaves. As they went to George Washington, George Washington said, you're right. And I'm going to release my slaves after I die and after Martha dies, because I want her to be taken care of, we're going to release our slaves. George Wilberforce in England was a strong voice for abolition. And without the Christian value of life, without the Christian love, those things would still be in play. But when the local church is unhealthy, it is lifeless. But when the local church is healthy, it's life-giving. I don't know about you, but I've been to lots of churches that are lifeless. And when I'm part of a church that's lifeless, and I can usually feel when I walk in, when it's lifeless, it seems like it takes life from me. Like the, the church always wanting more from me. Well, we need you to, we need you to give another offering. Well, I just gave one offering. Yeah, but we need you to know the one. Before you live, we're going to take another one. Like it's trying to take life from you. But when a church is healthy, it doesn't want anything from you. It wants something for you. And that's the type of church I want. I want a church that doesn't want to take something from you. It wants to give you something. It wants to give you life, not take your life. It wants to give you hope, not take hope. It wants to give you love, not take love. And Paul knew this. That's why Paul was willing to die for the local church. So this is Psalms 92. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. Everybody say planted. They didn't attend once a month. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God and they still bear fruit in old age. Real quick, 10 benefits, and I'm about to close. 10 benefits of being connected to the local church. This came from a New York Times, you know, the very conservative document. The New York Times called this the 10 benefits of a local church, and I changed a few of them up. One, it says on average, people who attend church are 25% physically healthier. The social connections, the hope, the prayers for health, the prayers for healing actually are 25% healthier if you're connected to a local church. Two is stronger marriages. The New York Times says you're not going to hear about strong, healthy marriages anywhere else in the world but at church. I mean, if your marriage is struggling, the best place to be is in church because you see an example of healthy marriages. There'll be a standard of healthy marriages, and you'll hear teachings about what marriage should be and could be and would be if you gave it all to Jesus. Three is community. You're part of the community, and you're part of something bigger than yourself. Four is better mental health by far much better mental health in the church than people that are not part of the church. Purpose and fulfillment, that God has given you a purpose for the church to use your gifts. You find fulfillment by using your gifts in the church. Six, experience and practice forgiveness. That you will not hear forgiveness talked about anywhere except the church. And the church is a place where you can experience the forgiveness of Jesus, but also practice forgiving others because the Christian walk is a walk of forgiveness. Corporate worship where you can experience the corporate presence of God. Ministry opportunities, spiritual disciplines of prayer, reading your Bible. So many people don't do it, but at church you're encouraged, you're inspired, you're motivated to do so. And you're reminded of your spiritual identity. But above all, this is it. We should love the church because Jesus loves the church. Like, is that, like I could give you 100,000 benefits of being connected to the local church. And it would all be self-centered. But you should love the local church because Jesus gave his life for the local church. Like you should love the church because Jesus loves the church so much. He gave his life for it, but he's also coming back for the church. And so there's lots of analogies and metaphors in the Bible about the church. Flock, building, body, all types of analogies. But the one that's used the most is bride. Like the church is the bride of Christ. As a matter of fact, in Revelations, when Jesus comes back, he's coming back not for a body, not for a building, not for a flock. He's coming back for a bride. And so his analogy is that of a groom who's awaiting his bride to come down the aisle. And I love doing weddings and seeing a groom when those doors open up and that beautiful bride comes in in a stunning white dress and them just begin to weep. Like we were doing... We were at Abe Heinkel's wedding a few months ago, and Abe, once Haley came in, dude, he's just boohooing and crying. I'm like, dude, like, I'm crying because he's crying, like, but he's just so enamored in love with his bride. 
And, and I think more than anything, we could talk about the purpose-driven church and different church models, but just a love for the bride of Jesus. If my love was just a small portion of what Jesus is, I'll have more than enough to endure the hurt that comes my way. Because here's how Paul defines it in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor. Everybody say splendor. Splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You know what amazes me? Is this an expectation of the church to get ready for the groom. Like you and I are the bride of Jesus. The problem with that is he says she should be clean, purified, unblemished, spotless. And I believe there's two types of people when it comes to the bride. So if, if we're having a wedding right now and the bride walks in and she kept stumbling over her train of her dress, or maybe there was some dirt on her dress, there'd be some people be like pointing it out and joking and mocking. What would she think? Why would she do her hair like that? Why didn't somebody not tell her about the spot on her dress? Why didn't somebody? See, there's so many people that are spectators at the wedding that instead of being a part of the wedding, they're there to watch and they're there to point out all the flaws of the bride and of the wedding and of the ceremony. Or they're there spotting out the things they want for their wedding ceremony. They're stealing ideas. But there's other people, groomsmen and bridesmaids, officiants, that if they see the bride stumbling over the train of her dress, a bridesmaid will go and grab the train and carry it for her. If they see something's wrong or something's dirty or something's messed up, they'll go over there and they'll try to remove the spot or try to get the wrinkle out of her gown. And see, in church world, you have a group of people that when the church looks blemished or wrinkled, all they want to do is sit back from afar and say, I told you so. That, that church, they're so unloving, they're so ungrateful, they're so unlike Jesus. Then you have other people, like I'd like to consider myself, when you see the church walking over her train or stumbling over her train or there's a blemish or wrinkle, that I run and I want to pick up the train and carry it over the dirt, over the mud, over the frustration, over the situation and cover her to prepare for this day. See, our job is to make sure that she stays unblemished. That's holiness. That's your lifestyle. Our job is to make sure she's without wrinkle. She's spotless. That when they open the doors of that wedding supper of the Lamb, and Jesus is standing there like that groom, his eyes light up. And you see the tears of love and joy as she walks down the aisle. It's our job to help her down the aisle until she sees Jesus face to face. So the question would be, not about the flaws you can point out in the church, but what can you do to carry the train of her gown to the wedding supper of the Lamb? Like, what can you do that when the world is pointing out the flaws of the church, the world is pointing out her blemishes, what can you do to pick up your corner of the blanket, your corner of the gown, and carry her through? I'll tell you one, don't be the spectator of the wedding, be a participator in the wedding. You step up and carry the, the corner of her train through kids' ministry and serving the kids that are looking for Jesus. You picking up the corner of her gown and picking it up over the threshold so people that are here, they're greeted with somebody who represents the true church, not the unhealthy church. So instead of complaining about, well, those people are so unfriendly, you go and be the friendly face by picking up the garment. You carrying the garment to protect her from the accusations of the world because it's worth it. And when I think about the, the, all the attacks against the church, I don't like organized church. You know, I've never heard somebody in Cuba say, I don't like the organized church. I never heard a pastor from Iran or Pakistan that I've talked to that says, you know, you know, in Iran, we love the church, we love God, we just don't really love the organized church. No, they're so infatuated with carrying the gown of the bride they don't care about the model. They don't care about the politics. They don't care about the blemishes. They don't care about the frustrations. They don't care about the church hurt. All they care about is carrying her garment to the groom. 
And that is my prayer for you. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes just for a minute. I just got two quick, two quick things I want to pray for you for. The first one is this. I understand church hurt. I can give you a list of hurt I've experienced in church. But you can't let the enemy deceive you in thinking that the church is the enemy when the church is your healing place. And if you're going to walk in the power and the majesty of the church, you've got to be a forgiving Christian, not a bitter Christian. And if you said, you know what, I've, I've been church hurt. I'm going to ask you to be very vulnerable because I'm about to repent on behalf of the church for, to you. If you've been hurt by the church and it affects your commitment to the church, I just want you to stand up right where you are. Real quick. Wait just a minute. So I've been hurt by the church. It affects my commitment to the church. Anybody else? If you raise your hand, will you please just stand up so I can see you? I'm about to, I'm about to share with you. Anybody else? I've been hurt by the church or leadership in the church or people in the church and it affects my commitment to the church. Anybody else? Those of you that are standing, those of you that raise your hand, I just want to tell you this. On behalf, I know they're not here, but on behalf of those who hurt you, on behalf of the leaders that maybe took advantage of you, maybe they abused you, maybe people in the church that judged you, I didn't point you towards grace or point you towards Jesus. I want to stand in their place right now and just tell you that was not God. That was an attack against you and the church. And I want to tell you I am sorry that the church, when it's living, loving, and functioning correctly, is the hope of the world. But when it is not, it can cause pain and turmoil and frustration. And I just want you to let you know that God wants you to use you to carry the hem of his garment. He wants you to use you to cover the spots in the best, most majestic way to be the church is to release and forgive those who hurt you. We see it from Jesus on the cross. We see it from Paul in Acts chapter 20. So Father, right now in Jesus' name, we just thank you so much for your church, your bride, and I just pray for a stirring of love and passion and desire for your church. Father, I also pray for those who have been hurt by your church. And right now, Father, we just pray right now for a spirit of forgiveness to saturate their minds, their hearts, their spirits, to say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they were doing. They don't even know they hurt us. Father, to release them from bondage and to release them to grace. Father, we pray for peace to saturate our minds and we pray for favor to saturate our lives. It's so, why we bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name.